Section 15 of Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. Section 15. The Tolliver Martin Logan Vendetta, Part 6. The Central Hotel was placed at the disposal of Tolliver by its owner. The former leased it to Bunk Mannon and his brother, Jim Mannon. These two were Craig Tolliver's constant associates. He had brought them from Elliott County. Knowing their reputation as desperados, he created them his bodyguard. Bunk Mannon, bloodthirsty, brutal, but courageous, believed he could serve his chieftain best by capturing the office of town marshal. He set himself up as candidate and was elected without a whisper of opposition. As town marshal and hotel keeper, he opened a saloon at the Central Hotel, operating it in the manner of the one run by Craig Tolliver, in violation of the law. Bud Tolliver was made a member of the town council. Craig Tolliver's triumph was now complete. The midnight carousals, the continuous discharges of Winchester rifles and pistols made night hideous. Persons of unquestionable courage grew nervous. At this period, the exodus of the inhabitants was greatest. Social functions were out of the question. Adjutant General Hill says in his report to the governor after the final battle of July 1887, one night while I was there, the young people of Moorhead had a social at the home of a prominent citizen, and I was told that it was the first ever of the kind which had occurred in the little town for years. The Tollivers controlled the court and the grand juries. A witness daring enough to indict them for their many offenses was certain to be indicted for some imaginary offense in return for his audacity. Thus, during one court, shortly after the shooting up of the Carey House, two daughters of Howard Logan testified before the grand jury and indicted one Dr. Wilson for participating in the riot. The same evening, the grand jury returned indictments against the two young ladies for false swearing. The secrets of the grand jury leaked constantly. Every word of testimony uttered before it was promptly and minutely reported to the Tollivers. Mrs. Martin, who had been a witness against them on several charges, was indicted for sending a poisoned turkey to a Tolliver sympathizer. Is it a wonder that Attorney General Hardin stigmatized the whole machinery of justice in the county as rotten? Is it a wonder that crime was rampant and of daily occurrence? Is it a wonder that outraged manhood at last took the law in its own hand and annihilated the outlaws? Sometime in the latter part of 1886 or early part of 1887, H. M. Keaton, constable of Moorhead Precinct, was shot and killed by Bud Tolliver. Keaton, too, had been duly served with notice of the date of his funeral. Remaining in the county, he furnished the body. W. N. Wicker was shot and killed by John Trumbo, a Tolliver man. 
At the February turn of the Rowan Circuit Court in 1887, Dr. Henry S. Logan, R. M. McClure, John B. and W. H. Logan, and Louis Rayborn were indicted for conspiracy to murder Circuit Court Judge A. E. Cole, James H. Sally, Commonwealth's attorney, and Z. T. Young. All the parties indicted were prominent citizens and of such a character that those not prejudiced against and acquainted with them at once declared the charges false. The entire transaction bore the earmarks of a shrewdly laid plot to rid the county of these men, who had become objectionable to Tsar Craig Tolliver, because they had dared to criticize his rule. The indicted parties were arrested and confined in jail, their bail having been placed at an extraordinary sum. They were hustled off to Lexington for safe keeping. John B. and W. H. Logan gave bond and returned to their home, about four miles distant from Moorhead. Their father remained in prison. When it became known that James Pelfrey was the chief witness against them, it seemed easy to see through the whole affair. Pelfrey's black character was well known by some of the Tolliver clan, and to this unscrupulous man they had turned to effect their villainous conspiracy. A suitable story was concocted and rehearsed. With it Pelfrey appeared before the grand jury and loaded upon his sin-stained soul the dastardly black crime of perjury. After their return home, the Logan boys lived quietly and alone, taking charge of the farm in their father's absence. W. H. Logan, Billy, was a consumptive twenty-five years old, and almost reduced to a skeleton by the dread disease. His brother, J. B. Logan, Jack, was a youth of eighteen. On the 7th of June, 1887, a disreputable character named Hiram Cooper, who lived in the neighborhood of the Logan boys, came to Moorhead and swore out a warrant against the Logan boys and their cousin, A. W. Logan, charging them with confederating and banding together for the purpose of murdering him, Cooper. This act was in pursuance of the original plot to rid the county of the family, which, however, had failed to some extent when the boys had succeeded in giving bail and were released from prison. Craig Tolliver, the police judge, issued the warrants. They were placed in the hands of his confederate, Town Marshal Bunk Mannon, who summoned a posse of ten men to assist him in the execution of the warrants against the two boys. Among these brave officers were Deputy Sheriff George Hogg, Bud Tolliver, J. Tolliver, Cal Tolliver, Hiram Cooper, and one Young. Completely ignorant of the impending danger, the boys were found at home. The first warning they had of the approach of the assassins, under the guise of officers, was the rapid firing of guns. The boys, terrified, ran upstairs, Mannon and Craig Tolliver rushing after them. Jack Logan seized a shotgun and, over the earnest protest of his brother Billy, fired into the body of Mannon, 
inflicting a painful but unfortunately not fatal wound manon and craig tolliver retreated from the house while the boys waited tremblingly with bated breath for developments they saw there was no hope for them the smell of burning wood and clouds of smoke told them of their peril by order of judge tolliver the posse comiatus had built a fire on the porch intending to burn the house and thus force the boys to come out the crackling of flames the shouts and cruel derisive laughter of the brutal band outside presented a scene such as we read of with horror in the stories of the indian wars deputy sheriff hogg then requested permission to extinguish the flames the other representatives of the law consenting a parley was held hogg went into the house and offered the boys the alternative of surrender or death by fire they naturally chose the former hoping against hope that some miracle might yet save them or that perhaps their appearing unarmed might move the band with compassion and mercy however before leaving the house they wished assurance that their lives should be protected deputy sheriff hogg reported to craig tolliver and that redoubtable officer of the commonwealth authorized him to promise them protection this assurance was then communicated to the boys supplemented by the personal guarantee of sheriff hogg the boys determined to leave the house billy logan went downstairs in company of hogg the younger boy was yet reluctant to trust himself into the hands of craig tolliver and bunk mannon the town marshal but being again assured that no harm should come to him he too followed and emerged into the yard they were led away some fifty feet from the house to near a spring there john mannon opened fire upon the elder boy shooting him in the back this was the signal for a general fusillade by craig tolliver bunk mannon and others the boys fell dead not satisfied with their deaths the heartless assassins among whom town marshal mannon was the most ferocious trampled the prostrate forms stamped them and poured volley after volley into the dead bodies thus mutilating them beyond recognition they were left lying where they had fallen a gory shapeless mass the glassy eyes upturned to the sky in mute appeal to god to avenge this horrible assassination god saw and retribution followed close upon the heels of the inhuman wretches deputy sheriff hogg testified afterwards that he ran away as soon as the firing began the murderers joined him however before he had reached town on the brow of a hill overlooking moorhead craig tolliver halted the red-handed band and instructed them all to tell the same tale that the boys were killed in resisting arrest and that their killing had been an absolute necessity on the following day d boone logan a cousin of the murdered boys accompanied by h m hiram pigman and ap perry went to the logan homestead 
and found and cared for the mangled remains of his relatives. On that evening, upon their return home, they were warned that they would share a similar fate in the event they attended the funeral. Up to the time of the murder of the Logan boys, neither D. Boone Logan nor Pigman had taken any active part in the feudal strife. Indeed, they had carefully kept aloof from any act or speech that might in any way connect them, either directly or indirectly, with the faction. Boone Logan had attested the agreement signed by Craig Tolliver to remove from the county, but beyond this he had remained neutral. Not content, however, with foully murdering his young relatives, Craig Tolliver sent to Boone Logan the exasperating message that he must leave, that he, Tolliver, would rent his house and hire Logan's wife out to make a living for her children. By threatening D.B. Logan, Craig Tolliver made the mistake of his life. He conjured up a storm which passed soon beyond his power to control. When it broke loose in all its fury on the 22nd day of June, and the streets of Moorhead ran red with blood, the desperados experienced at last the lash of an avenging god. Boone Logan made futile efforts to have the murderers arrested. After several days had elapsed, Bunk Mannon, the town marshal, went to Logan and told him that he wished to have a trial and that the Tollivers were also ready for trial. But, said Mannon, it must be understood that we attend court with our Winchesters. Judge Stewart was also notified by the Tollivers that they wished a trial, to which request Judge Stewart made answer that he would not hold a bogus trial and refused to try the case. Logan, Pigman, and App Perry in danger of their lives, yet burning with indignation, entered into a solemn compact to effect the rest and trial of all the parties engaged in the murder of the Logan boys. A resolution made by such men as Boone Logan and his friends meant something more than mere words. They, too, were men of action. They went to work in the preparation of their plan with coolness and circumspection. Caution was needed indeed. They first attached to their cause a number of men upon whom they could rely. Meetings were held at secret places. Boone Logan was at once chosen as the leader of the enterprise. In the prime of manhood, of fine physique and intelligent, he was just the man to place at the head of such a hazardous undertaking. Combining indomitable courage with prudence, sagacity, and coolness, he was also a man of unflinching determination. Such was the man with whom the Tollivers now had to deal. Educated, a lawyer of prominence, and a polished, quiet gentleman, one would scarcely have picked him out as the man to oppose the outlaws, to attack them in their very stronghold and give them battle. Logan and Pigman avoided being seen in each other's company, yet the Tollivers by some means had learned of the secret meetings, and growing suspicious, began hunting them high and low. 
to relate the many narrow escapes these two men had from death would fill pages every road was patrolled by the tollivers passing trains were searched inquiries made everywhere and insulting messages sent to logan's family shrewdly he avoided any encounter but with dogged determination continued his preparations on the sixteenth day of june boone logan eluded the vigilance of the tollivers and succeeded in reaching frankfort kentucky where he asked for and was accorded an interview with governor knott to him logan related the existing conditions in rowan county the despotism exercised by craig tolliver and his associates in crime the horrible murder of the logan boys for which no one had as yet been molested and asked for troops to effect the capture of the outlaws the governor listened attentively to mr logan's representations but replied that he had already sent soldiers to moorhead at the cost of many thousands of dollars to the state with no other result than aiding courts in committing travesties of justice that under the circumstances he could not see his way clear to repeat his experiences with that county he then asked logan what percent of the population was actually engaged in the trouble and on receiving reply answered that the good citizens being so largely in the majority they should be able to themselves put down lawlessness logan admitted that he could find a number of citizens who would be willing to aid him in arresting the outlaws if they could secure the necessary arms he asked the governor for the loan of a few guns from the arsenal at frankfort offering to give satisfactory security for their safe return the governor explained that such a course was unwarranted and a matter beyond his control logan's face turned almost livid for a moment he did not blame the governor who acted under the law but he became exasperated at the thought that a band of murderers were under the law permitted to remain in undisputed possession of his county his home while the governor seemed without authority to come to the rescue of order and to maintain the dignity of the law courts had refused to do their duty officers championed openly the cause of the murderers peaceable citizens had been driven from their homes anarchy reigned supreme these thoughts filled his brain before his mind's eye appeared the mangled remains of his cousins he feared for his wife and children at moorhead his home might at this moment be reduced to ashes and its inmates burned or shot the young man's eyes gleamed with a dangerous fire his lips quivered while the strong heart beat almost audibly with excitement indignation and utter disgust at last he spoke slowly firmly every word full of meaning it was then he made his famous reply so often repeated and commented upon governor he said i have but one home and but one hearth from this i have been driven by these outlaws and their friends 
they have foully murdered my kinsmen. I have not before engaged in any of their difficulties, but now I propose to take a hand and retake my fireside or die in the effort. Future events proved that these words were uttered for a purpose other than mere dramatic effect. The flashing eye told plainly of the passions that had been kindled in his heart, and the governor could not but admire the man's just indignation and determination to do what the highest authorities in the state could not do. The action of Governor Knott in refusing to send troops to Rowan County has been criticized by those ignorant of the law and the powers of the governor in such cases. The law lays down the scope of his authority. The power of the county had not been exhausted in bringing about, or attempting, the apprehension of the criminals. He had already responded with troops to protect the court, only to find that the authorities showed the white feather, that compromises with criminals had been entered into, that juries and officers were corrupt, and when trials had occurred had proved a farce. No doubt in his heart he wished for Logan's success. The man had made futile attempts to live peaceably. Now he intended to act in self-defense. The government cannot help him. He must therefore help himself. A man's home, no matter how humble it may be, is sacred as the king's palace in the eyes of the ancient common law. To defend it from intrusion and attack is man's God-given right, his duty. Boone Logan set about to retake his fireside. End of section 15